While we're here together these next couple days, we're going to be looking at the core of the Buddha's teachings. And these teachings were all given as the Buddha's entire ministry was offered for the express purpose of relieving suffering. When people came to the Buddha with deep suffering, he helped them see the way things really are. So when we, when we look at this chain of dependent origination and we see the way the Buddha discovered how one thing conditions another thing, conditions another thing, conditions another thing, that brings us to this place of suffering and continuing to go back over those same cycles. It was his way of, of seeing that if we take away the cause, then the cause for suffering, then the suffering stops. So when we are working with our own experience, we can also see the conditions that bring about the suffering in our own mind, in our own heart. And we can work with how to remove those conditions and causes. We make the mistake sometimes, oftentimes, of thinking that those causes are outside of us. It's because of what other people did or what other people said or what actually is the situation in the world. And yet what the Buddha kept pointing to is that the misunderstanding is within us, that no one can make us suffer. They can inflict pain, they could hurt the body, but they can't make us suffer mentally. We have to be corroborating with that. And it's up to us to, to stop that suffering for ourselves. And it's so, I find, inspiring and encouraging that the Buddha could actually teach this and that people can make this happen in their own minds to a point where suffering can't touch you anymore full enlightenment, awakening, the end of desire to have things, experience things, think of ourselves as an entity, a self, without anything more to gain or lose. And that instead of this being some kind of dull, monotone way of experiencing, it's filled with joy, freedom, contentment, peace, and love, compassion. The kind of love like metta shines on everyone evenly like the sun. Actually richer and more wonderful than any kind of attachment bound love.
So that's what we're aiming for. So when I look at this chain of dependent origination, and you see that you know, it begins with ignorance and ends with death, that there's this order of things that cause one another, you see the the ignorance is the cause for the mental formations, the volitional formations, because those are active and unsettled, consciousness arises. And as soon as consciousness arises, mentality and materiality, or name and form, body and mind, other aspects of mental capability arise, at least in a primitive form, the sense bases come. Contact with the world comes and feeling. That whole collection is almost automatic. You can't do anything to stop that. It's like a domino effect. It just happens. The feeling, feeling arises when we see certain things, taste, touch, smell, hear, think. And we can't really do anything about that. It's just, it just comes. Based on previous conditions. But when we get to that point of feeling, then we have that choice of whether to move on to craving and clinging, becoming birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, or being present, aware, making a choice to act in ways that are wholesome and to the best, in the best way we can, free from attachment. So this requires a certain amount of understanding of the way things are, the other part of the chain where we have some control or some opportunity to make changes, looking back at those mental formations and where we might be misunderstanding the nature of reality, ignorance, mental formations. We can approach the practice from at sometimes being present with feeling, staying present with it and observing it, in the in the at the first level holding ourselves back from some kind of unskillful response, which is really helpful, not making more trouble. And then or we can come to it from being present with the mental activity that brings up the the feeling and see if we can understand where we're misunderstanding nature. And that has four pieces, or, or 
faces. The Buddha talked about three of those often. We think something's more permanent than it is. We think something's actually bringing us pleasure and it's bringing us suffering. We think something is actually me or mine when it's not. Those three characteristics, you've probably encountered them before. That is an incredibly potent and valuable practice to apply to basically everything we connect with. And there's a fourth one that the Buddha throws in. We see things, we think they're beautiful when they're actually ugly or unbeautiful. So let's look at some examples. When I, um, when I was married, I thought we had a great relationship, and one day my husband told me he didn't want to be married anymore. And that came out of, totally out of the blue. So there were huge waves of feeling that went on for, you know, weeks. But fortunately, the, the Dhamma practice was strong enough that I could just stay with those waves of feeling and, and be present with what was happening the, as the feeling would present itself in my body and present with what that was doing to my mind. And then I could investigate it. Why am I suffering? And basically the kind of light bulb moment was I'm suffering because I thought this marriage was more permanent than this. I mean, I know that it's not going to last forever. Um, before I became a nun, I was an interfaith minister for a while. That was after the software design sort of era. <laughs> and um, married people sometimes, um, officiated. And there was this one wedding ceremony that they, someone brought to me that I think had the word forever in it about 10, 12 times. We would love to be in denial about <laughs> the impermanence of, of some things, right? And. So I, I knew the marriage wasn't going to last forever. One of us would die or whatever would happen, right? But I didn't expect it to happen then. And that was really the, the foundation of my suffering. Now, of course, there was a whole bunch of other stuff attending to that suffering. I didn't have a job. I would be moving out of the house. There, you know, I, basically my life had just fallen apart. But that, too, doesn't have to cause suffering. And in fact, after some short period of reflection, I was able to say, what do I do with this uh, crater in front of me? <laughs> and I, it was really my opportunity to become a nun. 
Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we never know. And the main thing is this practice of being able to to look at what's happening and see it in terms of this bigger picture. What was the Buddha revealing to us? Sometimes we think something is bringing us happiness. But what it's bringing is suffering and sort of the simple example might be getting into a relationship that turns out to be toxic or um, you know that job you really want sometimes I see this happening it's easier to watch these things in other people's lives by the way (laughs) you see it happening over there they're getting it totally wrong, and then you turn that, instead of being worried about fixing anything over there, you turn it around and you go, where am I doing that? That's the real benefit of that observation. You know, you want that job, you want that job so bad, you can't wait for the phone call, that you get that job and you're delighted for, you know, a month. And it's not like there's anything wrong with that, except that the mind is doing this thing where it's like, all great, I want that, that's going to be my dream job, and then it's got all the suffering involved in it. So the, the Dhamma point of view is much more balanced, right? You see the suffering in the, in, in the happiness, and you see the happiness in the suffering. And, and from that place, you can be observing this whole drama without being awash in it. And the self, not self, that's a real gift. All these things that we think are ours, everything material, including this body. If we can really understand that this body doesn't belong to us, and it, it doesn't, because we don't control it. If we were in control of this body, we probably wouldn't will it to age. Or get sick. And unless we've crossed into that area of the, the craving to not be, we probably don't want to die. There's this really cute song. I come from the Midwest, and... Uh, country music song, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. (laughs) But if we could take in what the Buddha said about this body not being ourself, and the self doesn't reside in it, and it doesn't reside in the self, it doesn't belong to me, So then it has some kind of problem. Okay, you take care of it. But we don't have to be concerned. 
Now that's a tall order. And it's not like we should blame ourselves in any way for whatever feelings we have. It's all about learning and growing and developing our understanding and our ability to be clear about this experience, this process of life. Because the things we do have control over, which, I mean, Ajahn Jeff said to me one time, there's precious little we have control over. But the choices of how we conduct ourselves, our morality, how we treat people, where we're going to focus our attention, those are the things that we can decide. And that's why that that practice of staying with our feelings when we have strong negative feelings and not acting, that's a choice. We can, if we have a tendency towards anger, we might think there's no choice, it just happens. But there's always this point where you decide to go with it. And it's the same with other things, other kinds of feeling. So that's where, you know, to be able to recognize what is perceived as our self but actually isn't self. So the Buddha was clear that the body, feeling, mental formations, volitional formations, consciousness, perception, none of those are the self. The deep investigation starts to reveal there is no permanent self. That's not what keeps going round after round. Instead, it's a process, a flow of karma. And yet here we are, sitting here on a conventional level. We have a history. We may have a future. What we do, we just don't know what it is. So we, we have... We can view this process as this precious opportunity to experience the Dhamma and to grow in our understanding of it, and the precious opportunity to be kind and helpful to others. It's kind of like I heard somebody ask Ajahn Amaro one time about, well, what happens once you realize that there's no self? None of this is self, you know, like, who feeds the kids? Who takes the dog for a walk? And he said, kindness. So the Buddha put the attention on suffering because that's the clue to where we're getting caught up, where there, there's a mistake being made somewhere. I don't know if I like that way. It's, it's 
not seeing something as it really is. It's our indication. It's the, it's the flag that goes up and says, oh, there's some work of, of calming and clearing and investigation that I can do here. And so it's, it's helpful if we can develop the habit to come to it with a kind of enthusiasm as if, you know, you're an explorer on an adventure. Because it's some pretty interesting territory when you get into it without getting too um, caught up in owning it. But when things are really seem very big and difficult for us, that's not usually how we can approach it. At least not without a, a lot, quite a level of practice. So when the when people came to the Buddha with deep suffering, what he did was he always helped people step back and see the bigger picture. And you probably know the story that I'm going to tell you, but you might not know all the details, so I think it's worth sharing. There's a woman named Kisa Gotami at the time of the Buddha. And Kisa means haggard. She was a kind of thin and not very pretty, and she came from a poor family. So her, you know potential for making a good marriage were probably not that great. But as it happened, this son of a merchant, so more well-off family, um, saw how kind she was and, and what a good heart she had, and he wanted to marry her. And he did, but his family never accepted her. And this caused her a great deal of suffering. And her husband was always kind of in the middle, you know, kind of like wanting to follow his, what his parents wanted and wanting to be a good husband, but it was always really painful and awkward until she got pregnant and gave birth to a son. Suddenly, they're all great, nice to her. Suddenly, she's wonderful. For the first time in her life, she's really happy. And she doted on this little boy even more than, you know, most mothers would. Because he was actually her kind of ticket to happiness and security. And then when he got to the age of, he was just starting to walk, he got sick and he died within two days. So you can imagine the shock. And more than that, the worry that she would be blamed and a real outcast in the family and persecuted. And her mind might have gone farther than what actually would have happened. But in any case, she could not accept the death of her son. So this is the part that you might have heard where she's got the dead baby in her arms and she's going from house to house looking for or going around in the in the town asking for some kind of help. Can somebody cure this baby? 
and people are, you know, telling her, look, your baby's dead, you know, and, and eventually people kind of laughing at her, which, I mean, you can wonder how cruel, but you can kind of see how this could go. And then there was one man who said, the Buddha is here in the monastery, go to, go to, to him. So she does, she comes to the Buddha and she asks him to cure the baby. Now, there's all kinds of different ways that I hear people tell this story, which don't align with what I know about the Pali Canon. So I'll say that the Buddha said, I can help you, but you have to go and get a mustard seed. So she's all excited about this. He said, however, you have to get a mustard seed from a house where there's been no death. Because mustard seeds, everybody's got mustard seeds. So she goes, she's still carrying the baby in her arms. She goes from house to house. First thing she asks, can I have the mustard, you know, please give me a mustard seed. They're so sure. And she said, but has anyone died here? Now, in that society, it's not like uh, how many people have died in your house. In ancient India, and probably even today, in a lot of places, a lot of people die in the house. Generations. So, you know, if you, if you ask if anybody's died here, they're not just going to give you a yes or no. They're going to give you the whole story. And some of those stories as she went from house to house were about children and parents and aunties and, and all the different stories. And eventually it sank in. At one house, someone even said to her, the dead are more numerous than the living. <coughs> Now, this kind of thing has a really interesting effect. The crying stopped. The desperation stopped. She took her son to the charnel ground. I don't know, one text says she buried the, the baby, I don't know. But she was able to accept what had happened and do what would normally be done. And then she went back to the Buddha. And he said, so, did you bring the mustard seed? She said, I'm done with mustard seeds. And she asked if she could become a nun. And right there, he gave her a teaching about impermanence, about how if we're clinging to family or cattle, or homes, or anything. We get washed away the way a village gets washed away in the flood. And with that teaching, she became a stream enterer. Right there. 
Because when we have this kind of um, huge shock, the mind can be open in a way it isn't otherwise. It was a powerful experience. And she ordained as a nun, and it didn't take long before she was fully enlightened. So what the Buddha was was helping her see through that experience was the bigger picture of how impermanence works. There was another woman who came to the Buddha who was grieving over her daughter who had died. She was every day in the cemetery crying. Oh, Jiva, Jiva. This was her daughter's name, which actually means life. And when she talked to the Buddha, he said, there are 10,000 daughters of yours buried in the cemetery named Jiva. Which one are you mourning for? And here again, the Buddha asks us to step back and look at the whole flow from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime and to start to recognize that there's nothing going wrong when life ends. There's nothing going wrong when a relationship ends. It was the first thing my son, the monk, said to me when when I talked to him about my husband saying he didn't want to be married anymore. He said, it's normal for things to end. But we have to take care of the heart. And being able to stay present with the feelings in the heart and work with the mind in a way that we're not continuing to build up the negativity or the pain or the suffering. And that has a lot to do with wise attention. So when you practice today being present with what you feel, we'll start there. Being present with what you feel, you can bring to your mind a situation. It could be a personal situation that brings up strong feeling. It could be what's happening in the world. But what do you feel inside and where does it present in your body? And really staying present with looking at that. If it's in the heart area, if it's in the stomach area. Asking questions about what it feels like. How big is it? You know, what's its texture? What's its color? If it has one. And the purpose of those questions is that we're stepping back to see it in a bigger context. It's mindfulness. When we're having an intense emotional experience, it feels like it fills up the whole screen of our view. But we can always step back and see the space around it. And if we're able to stay present, the things to to watch for 
are where we might be holding on, where we might be feeding the feeling, or where we might be trying to suppress the feeling. Because suppressing it doesn't work, and feeding it or clinging to it don't work either. In terms of liberation, in terms of release. And eventually, as we practice in this way, with things that come up for us, we start to learn the, the skill of knowing when to turn our attention to something else. So like, we've probably all had the kind of experience where something happened and then we go over it and over it and over it in the mind. And it's, we're really kind of digging that groove deeper in the mental continuum and we're building up more and more animosity, sometimes to the point where we've just got to tell this person off or you know, do something like that about it. When actually, if we knew the point where we turn our attention to something else, instead of going over what a scoundrel that guy was, how could he possibly say that to me? It's, it's actually the, the wise use of attention. So turning the attention, and it's not suppression, and it's not ignoring it. I mean, it's skillful, skillful attention. And that, we can also see that with the world situation. It's like, how much do you, do we want to monitor that to know what's happening, to understand the problem, to know how we can respond and what we want to do without emphasizing it so much in the mind that we become paralyzed around it, that we are, are feeding feeling that's actually unwholesome. Does that make sense? So, so as we practice, we start to learn, okay, not every situation is handled, obviously, in the same way. You get a sense of, okay, now the mind is starting to turn dark, I'm going to turn the attention to some aspect of Dhamma. I'm going to look for what am I, what am I seeing here? Am I really seeing this in line with the nature of reality? What is the bigger picture in terms of the way things change through eons and through lifetimes? And how can I use this as a way to develop into this transcendent chain of dependent origination where I solidify and develop my faith and I experience the sense of joy that comes from knowing that there's a way out of the suffering, that I can cultivate the the more extreme form of that, that rapture and serenity and happiness. This is, these are all on the side, and concentration, samadhi, these are all on the side of sort of um, samatha practice, serenity practice. And as you probably already know, 
You need both sides, the concentration side and the investigative side. So in this chain, by the time you get to sukha, which is happiness, that's the condition for samadhi, which is stillness of mind, concentrated mind, peaceful mind. All of these stages give us the buoyancy and the, the, the insulation for the heart, the feeding of the, the good qualities, the resilience that we need. And then at that point of having the ability for the mind to be still enough that wisdom can arise in it, that's where we get that glimpse of seeing the way things actually are. And when we can get any kind of sense of seeing more clearly the true nature of reality, then there's a more of a letting go. We're a bit more disenchanted with gaining more offspring or whatever it is. Dispassion. I was going through a period of doing a very um, diligent practice of the three characteristics. Just looking at everything. Looking at the body. Looking at all the ways it could fail. I have a, I'm going to be co-teaching a series with a, an oncologist who doesn't want me to use that word. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be teaching about the heavenly messengers, so aging, sickness, death, and awakening. But the body does fail us at some point. We get to a point where there's nothing more you can do to help it. And no doctor can help it. And it's really good if we can just take that in and see it. And it's like, this isn't me. This is a a great vehicle for experiencing Dhamma developing the heart but I can already like you know bring it into my meditation that at some point this body's going to die and there's nothing wrong I can bring into this meditation that someday my daughter will die and there's nothing wrong My granddaughter will die, and there's nothing wrong. When my daughter was pregnant, everyone was very happy. One of my sisters said to me, there was something that was a a bit alarming, and she said, what if she loses the baby? That baby is going to die at some point, whether it's now or it's in 80 years. It's okay. And you might think, how can a grandmother feel like that? 
I love that granddaughter. But can we love without that unreasonable need for the continuation of this process in this form and realize that that process will continue and it isn't even owned by what I think of as my granddaughter. It's not so limited as that. I can't hold it and control it. And the part that's so hard to grasp without experiencing it with any of this is that disenchantment, that dispassion, that relinquishment is inspiring, enlivening. that the ability to to actually love without attachment is so much richer. That's the part that's hard because if we're if we're not in that place, it doesn't look like it will be that way. And so much of what happens in in our in our realizations when there's insight, it's surprising. So anyway, back to the this period when I was very earnestly practicing looking at impermanence, suffering, and non-self. I was um, at a monastery in Australia, and there was a visiting teacher from Thailand. Again, it's one of those advanced beings that everybody's, you know, kind of, this is an arahant. And he was... Um, giving a talk, and when he was asked a question, if he could describe how he got to that point. And he actually started from the beginning and took it all the way to the full realization. And he he was um, talking about, you know, cultivating concentration to its fullest degree, cultivating mindfulness to its fullest degree, going into hospitals and really looking at how the ailments of each person represent the impermanence of the body, what can just happen to you, you don't have any control over. One of the things to remember is that being ill is not your fault. You don't really have to blame blaming anyone for these things that happen to the body this is is unfortunate so he he was talking about you know this whole process in his practice of coming to this place of really awakening and as i sat there this image came up of this heap that was everything in this world. Everybody, everything. And it was sliding. It's all sliding. And we keep trying to push it up 
and keep it in place and keep it going and make it work. But its nature is to slide. And then I, it hit me. It's like, there is nothing wrong with that. There is no reason to be unhappy about any of it. That's its nature. It's falling apart. That's what it does. We don't have to try so hard to keep it together. And this happiness came that didn't go away for days. I couldn't stop smiling. That's the surprise. That's what this transcendent chain is talking about. And that's available to all of us. So the, the question is, how do, we, how do we do this? And it's through that kind of like, okay, what does my mind believe right now that's keeping me from seeing that? What is it that I can do to provide the causes and conditions for this kind of awakening to occur, this kind of knowledge. I mean, there's, there's, there's a process here. There's many steps to go beyond wherever any of us is right now, perhaps. But that's okay, because as we develop our resiliency, our, our actual safety increases, increases, increases until we're not afraid of anything, except one thing. The only thing to fear is wrongdoing, unskillful action. Don't have to be afraid of anything else. Unskillful action is carried forward after this body dies. Now we can, there's always a path of recovery, don't worry, if there's been unskillful action in the past. No matter what we've done, there's a path to spiritual recovery. There's a path of spiritual recovery. 